0: Hello there, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by funkinstuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Sculfine, musicologist and author of Everything's on the One, The First Guy to Funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over Amazon and pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. It's chock full of funk goodness. So get a copy. Get another copy as a gift, much appreciated, and you'll enjoy it. This episode features one of America's most important publishing figures, the trailblazing Regina Jones, the Los Angeles-based Soul newspaper she co-founded with her husband and oversaw as the first periodical of its time spotlight black music acts and entertainers. Launched in 1966 in the shadow of the Watts Riots, Soul quickly rose to become the preeminent RB and funk publication until it ceased operation in the early 1980s. This was during the heyday of some of the greatest music ever produced by some of the greatest singers and musicians of all time. From James Brown and Aretha Franklin, to stars of Motown and Stax, to Sly Stone and Stevie Wonder, to Earthwind and Fire and the Ohio Players, to Parliament, Funkadelic and Cameo. shaka khan and down summer to prince and rick james all of them were covered in the pages of soul where talented young writers editors and photographers developed into some of media's top success stories in their own rights jones lays bare her incredible story of rising up as a teenage wife and mother of five learning publishing management and how to navigate the sometimes savage world of music and entertainment to shatter barriers for both blacks and women while producing a newspaper that now stands as one of the most important documents of black music. As if that was not enough, she shares how she overcame a middle age crisis once Soul was shuttered to rise up once again in record publicity, award show and television production, and charitable pursuits. Oh yeah, and she also went to Neverland Ranch for an exclusive interview with Michael Jackson who had specifically requested her for Vibe magazine in 1995. Here now is the incredible tale of the soul that stood behind Soul. Hey, I'm so pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, Regina Jones, the co-founder of Soul Newspaper, which was the black music publication of choice for those in the know during the late 1960s through the early 1980s golden era Of soul and funk Regina so glad to have you how are you today
1: thanks Scott I'm glad to be here glad to be still standing and able to talk about this
0: fantastic you know so you're coming to us from your hometown of LA right
1: born and raised
0: Wow you know when I I was from Los Angeles too and when I lived out there there there's so many transplants we almost seemed like we were you know out of the ordinary
1: as a native i'm I, i'm very rude about it because i've had to make my adjustment for the transplants so when they bad talk los angeles i say, where are you from and they'll tell me i said so why don't you go back <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's right either love it, or <laughs> love, leave it. love it or leave it so um i gotta tell you it's such a thrill to talk to you you know i grew up uh, as a teenager big fan of of the music and soul newspaper was just the publication i look forward to it all the time you know i would do regular trips to the newsstand as a teenager and i would always look for billboard Cashbox, record Roll, soul um you know of course ebony and jet any of the other publications that might have the r acts of the day and uh you know every time i saw one of my favorites you know i definitely i didn't buy a lot mostly i looked at the newsstand but I bought some of those Soul magazines.
1: Okay, I was wondering at the price of Billboard and those in those days. How you how you were managing what you were doing?
0: <laughs> no, that's why I had to look at them at the newsstand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So,
1: um, which newsstand do you remember?
0: Yeah, I used to go to um, the ones on. Um, there was one on National and Sepulveda, and uh-huh. also uh, there was one on Robertson and um, Pico. Or
1: yes just south of pico right uh, behind this drugstore. Yeah, yeah yeah yep okay so All right. <laughs> <laughs> you know i used a problem to make sure we were visible
0: <laughs> and then um there might have been one in westwood at some point too but yeah that robertson one i think was the main one that i was hitting yeah
1: mm-hmm. so
0: because i was living in santa monica so
1: okay
0: yeah so any rate so glad to have you we're going to cover some great ground here, there's a lot of viewers and listeners that are gonna be thrilled to uh, hear your stories and your history. So thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you again.
0: Well, you know, we know you're from LA, but got to know a little bit more about how Regina Jones grew up and, you know, how you, um, you know, I know you got involved in your family business or something like that, and you really got started at a young age. So. Tell us a little bit how you grew up and about your teens.
1: Well, my mother was a beautician and uh, my father, before going into World War II, was an elevator, elevator starter at Southern California Edison. When he came back, what we call um, post-traumatic syndrome, he had, but they didn't identify it then, but he was shaking and he was such a different person. I never knew that other person though. That he became a janitor because they liked him so much. He stayed at the, the Edison Company as a janitor. So that's what they did. I had no clue we were poor. We lived in South LA, uh, 119th and Central, Central Avenue. I call it Watts adjacent because right across the street was Watts. And on my side was the city, and the other side was the county. And I went to those schools. And uh, as a teen, way before I was a teenager, I liked money. So I dried dishes. I got, uh, as an only child, I got an allowance and I got lunch money, but I dried dishes in the cafeteria in the sixth grade so I could save my lunch money and, and drying dishes gave me a free lunch. So I already had that spirit. I would had it earlier at mom at the beauty shop where I would go there on weekends and I would run errands for the customers and go get them sandwiches and lunch and things like that for a tip. And would get very upset, but I kept it to myself when the tip was no tip or, you know, really nothing. And I just had that kind of spirit. Uh, I don't know what it was, but I was concerned it could because I always heard them fighting about money. Mm-hmm. So I was always conscious of money. As I grew up as a teenager, you know, I went to uh, two different middle schools, as they call them now, they were junior highs. One was Enterprise in Compton. That's because my mother felt that the local school that I was slated for when she took me there and saw how bad it was, she immediately got a transfer and took me to Enterprise in Compton. And then I didn't want to go there anymore. And I went to Gompers, which was in my neighborhood, and I liked it much better. And from there, I went on to Fremont High School. So I'm a Fremontian, even though I graduated from Washington Adult School. Um, Ken and I met when I was in the 10th grade He had already graduated and Ken was my husband, but he came back to announce the football games and he was on campus and he was, you know, big shot type friends with the principal. And he eyeballed this little kid and, you know, we started dating and we got married at 15. I was 15, he was 19 and went on to have uh, five children, one at 16, 17, 18, 19 were boys. And my fifth child is my daughter when I was 22.
0: Wow, yeah. So I mean, today, today especially, that would be looked at as being so so young and early.
1: It was so so young then. <laughs> no, nope, not my other brother doing that. Um, <laughs> you know, we thought we knew what we were doing. We thought we were grown. We thought we were mature, both of us. And he he worked hard, and he always wanted to be a television newscaster. And he was in love with George Putnam. And he watched the news. He'd been a choir, uh, altar boy at the church growing up. He liked being in front of the the camera. And I was cool behind the scenes counting the money. So it worked. (laughs) When Watts riots took place in 1965, Ken was working as a reporter. And as he watched from a Sunset uh, and Vine office building in Hollywood, I think it was Kate... Mm, it won't come up right now, but anyhow, I remember it was Cecil Tuck and and that was the the, uh, program director. But Ken saw Watts burning and came up with the idea there should be a black publication or something about entertainment for the black youth in our community. And that thus came the idea of Soul. And that was in 65 of, uh, I think the summer of 65 and in April of 66, the first issue of Soul rolled off the press. With James Brown and Mick Jagger, and it said, "Oh God, white stealing soul or blue-eyed stealing soul or something like that." So we, we came out with an eight pager <laughs> with controversy on the cover.
0: Wow! And what what had you been working at at that point?
1: Oh, I was working at LAPD, uh, the Los Angeles Police Department, broadcasting police calls. I was what they called a RTO or radio telephone operator. So when a policeman called in from the field, I was the one that said, uh, you know, seven eight three seven eight three. you know, I'd give him information or answer their questions. And I said, he, cause that's all there was, was he's in those days too. <laughs> out in the field at the police department.
0: Did you enjoy that work at all? Or were you looking to get out of it?
1: I needed a job. We had a whole lot of babies and, um, he, Ken had done that before me, so I took the city test. The reason I went there, I had applied for a, job, a couple of jobs, and I didn't get them. Um, one was a go, uh, the Golden State Mutual Life Insurance Company, which was founded my, by my grandfather in 1927. So when I went there like in 1964, 65, looking for a job, I was told I wasn't qualified, and I carried resentment for years and years and years, and I heard about that. But in retrospect, as I've matured and gotten over myself, I realized, God, what a blessing that was. I could have been stuck as an insurance salesman my whole life. I might have been successful. I might have had more money. But I had a much more exciting life than I could have ever had there.
0: (laughs) It's kind of the polar opposite, just about, I think.
1: I am so grateful (laughs) they told me no. (laughs)
0: So when uh, Ken uh, came to you with this idea or however that germinated, what was your initial reaction and how did you kind of get it rolling?
1: I thought it was a great idea and um, I told him so. And then we discussed names, Flame, uh, I can't remember all of them, but I said, Soul, that's the name, Soul is what it's gotta be. And at that point, there was a publication out same format as Soul called The Beat. And I don't know if you knew The Beat in those days and it had come out a few months before Soul. Mm-hmm. And Cecil Tuck was the publisher. And so following the same format, and he was working with Cecil. We did it using the same three white college girls that were putting it out, from, that went to USC and worked part-time putting out first one publication and then two. <laughs> Carol Deck, Rochelle Reed, and Nikki Wine. And we started it out first in their offices for a short period, moved it home to my house, and then for about six months we put it out on the dining room table right here in the house that I live in today.
0: Wow. <laughs> two, day,
1: two days two days w two days a week until we became smart enough to become a bi weekly and come out every two weeks. And then it was every two weeks two days every two weeks um the thing that made soul take off is ken had this other idea just that in not to just throw a newspaper out on the stands in los angeles but to affiliate it with the radio station and that that time it was kgfj was the big station and so it was called kgfj soul and thus they gave us on the air promotion on sale now kgfj soul with the temptations blah, blah, blah. And we gave them two inter- uh, pages in the centerfold that they could do vi- hard advertising promotion for their station.
0: Yeah, so KGFJ for those not from the area, I mean that and, and then a little bit later K-Day were the black radio stations for the area and grew up uh, with my ear glued to those. Um, actually, JJ Johnson was recently on the show and I uh, was talking about K-Day, so there you go.
1: Yeah, kgfj was oh god uh the magnificent Montague, and got so much no, uh, notoriety from when he was on the air saying burn baby burn They mm-hmm. said he cited the riot uh, oh they were just fabulous guys <laughs> big jim randolph you know certain ones i remember back in those days
0: i gotta share something with you virginia my sister started off a, a publication in her house when she was like 12 or 13 called the star collector and it was on, um, you know um teen heartthrobs and things like that and she actually went on to become the editor of flip magazine and she wrote for tiger bead and all those so yeah yeah we kind of had a little bit of that going on in my family too
1: okay i remember tiger Bee very well <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and even flip
0: yeah yeah So, um, wow. So your life uh, changed radically and obviously and-
1: um, Can I share a story? You bet. Okay, we moved out of the the, the dining room and we moved into uh, offices on Melrose uh, and Sweetser. And we moved up there and we moved into an office with an interior decorator. He had the whole suite, but we took two of the offices he took one and we shared the reception area. And I was just the bookkeeper. That's all I did for soul. I took care of the financial, I worked at LAPD. But one day I went in there to pick up the, the checks and whatever was there. And the receptionist was alone in the office, sleep on the sofa, and I fired her. It never occurred to me that by firing her, I had fired the person that took care of all, both businesses. So somebody had to replace her, so guess who? I did, so I ended up leaving my job, going to work there and becoming full-time.
0: Well, you had to wear so many hats, right?
1: Well, at first it was bookkeeper and then I was receptionist, so I was learning more because Ken was basically working jobs and running it and the ladies were handling the editorial. But then my next uh, adventure was to sign up other radio stations in other cities. So we spread out to San Francisco in the Bay Area. Added KDIA. We went into New York, WWRL, Chicago, WVON, across the country till we had twenty-seven or twenty-eight stations. So on the old-fashioned typewriters, I was first of all I had to convince the people that this was a great idea. So now I'm a salesperson, and so then I had to send the contracts. So I'm typing these contracts on this old typewriter and sending them out and. We were across the country <laughs> within a year.
0: Wow. So well,
1: <laughs> did,
0: did you have any mentors, anyone to consult with on things like legal or you know things like that?
1: There's nobody. It was just by the, <laughs> you know, you just get up and you do what you got to do. And I think it's a good thing because I didn't know what the rules were and what wasn't allowed. <laughs>
0: Did, did, you or, did you or Ken have to go uh, to any of those cities in person to kind of broker the deals? Or were you able to do most of it by mail and phone?
1: On the phone. Uh, I remember talking to Mr. Sonderling. Do you remember that name? And he owned a bunch of radio stations. It, I was so young and I was so unexposed and having grown up in Watts and not in business that it didn't even occur to me he, how big and powerful and important anybody was. I had no fear of just speaking to people. No clue, okay? Ignorance is sometimes bliss, all right? <laughs> eventually, I had to go to those cities. I remember uh, going into WBON and, and meeting the people there at WWRL, uh, God WOL and uh, Washington, D.C. I eventually did have to go on the road. I did have to learn distribution and advertising sales. And then uh, most of it, Ken still handled the editorial. And I enjoyed that wifely duty of if you came in the office and you wanted something, I could lie even if I made the decision and say, let me check with my husband. And that was my stall mechanism of how I didn't act like I was responsible, (laughs) even though I was. And then he got a job as an anchor person at uh, KTV. Was it KTTV or CBS? I don't even remember. That's strange. And so he couldn't be visible at the newspaper anymore. So then that was when I got involved in the editorial content.
0: What year was that?
1: No clue. I'd have to really research (laughs) it.
0: I mean, was it like, you know, early on, midway, later? Oh,
1: no, it was very early on because... um, Carol and and Rochelle were still there and I can remember Rochelle coming in and sitting on my desk, you know, across from me and saying that she was thinking about leaving and going on to do something else and how much time did I think I'd need till I replaced her and I said something like you could leave today. And that didn't go over well, but that's the kind of spirit I had. You're, You're skipping boat, you know, you're jumping ship. So get the hell out of here, okay? That's how I was.
0: Yeah. So how many hours a week do you think you were working?
1: (sighs) I would eventually drop the children off at school and I'd hit three schools when I left the house eventually. The closest school was Fairfax for the last drop right near our office and I'd go to the office. So I was always at the office I'd say by 8.30 and I rarely ever left to go home and before eight at night. Wow. <laughs> yeah, rarely. And then there were nighttime events, as you know, there's a lot of nighttime schmoozing and, and uh, concerts, clubs. Weekends. And all that stuff, huh?
0: And weekends too.
1: And weekends too. Fortunately, I was, like I said, I was an only child and my mother basically gave herself to looking out after my children so that I would have an opportunity to develop. So she ran the house did the cooking, you know, all that. And I was out there working. <laughs> You're making me remember like going to New York in 1968. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, I don't know from anything, but I, I'm in New York hitting the advertising agencies, hitting, calling on everybody.
0: You
1: know what you have to do?
0: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you talk about learning on the job, you know,
1: Yeah. Yeah. I wish there had been mentors and people, but there really weren't at that time for me. Um, it was a man driven world in the late sixties. So I very quickly, uh, developed a very hard, uh, hard line and a foul mouth. Hmm. I knew how to defend myself verbally and, um, I didn't take I didn't take any smack. I mean I was I was hard nosed and I immediately would meet somebody and I'd say I've got a husband and five kids. I mean this was hello, I've got a husband and five kids. Like, don't mess with me. Um
0: so you guys did a little bit of like the good cop, bad cop with you and Ken?
1: Yes. <laughs> yes, yeah. And he would have to defer to me sometimes, but yeah, he was mostly by then he was so happy about being on TV that that's, that was it, other than he would kind of consult about covers and stuff. He liked to joke though that I took the paper over from him in a bloodless coup. And I kind of did do that to him. Um, he had white staff, I found me black staff. Um, I already had this racial thing. I was a woman of the 60s. I was Afrocentric a lot of ways and I wanted to give black people opportunities and I wanted to work with black people. I was comfortable with whites, but if we were called soul, we needed to have some soul. (laughs) And that's how um, Leonard Pitts who uh, became an editor, Leonard's a a Pulitzer Prize winner in, in 2014 for commentary. He's a syndicated columnist for the Miami Herald and Leonard was in college at USC he wrote a letter he wanted to write for Seoul. after about six months according to him he'd never heard anything so he got up the courage to call and I, I got this story from him he called the office and I took the call and he said who he was and he'd sent a letter and I had somebody check the files they found the letter and Ken had written him a letter that no they couldn't we couldn't use it but somehow or another it didn't get mailed so i immediately of course said come into the office now and he said it was raining and i didn't think about he didn't have a car he got on the bus he came up there and i welcomed him and i hired him as a part-time writer he eventually became our editor
0: so what are we still in the k uh, k relationship was for the first three years i understand right so are we still stay with
1: kgfj forever
0: oh really Okay, I read, wasn't there a certain kind of relationship for the first three years, though, and then you kind of grew it or something, or?
1: Yeah. No? Not to my memory. We were with KGFJ. Um, you know, I, I'm not, I'm looking for issues here. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is 1977, so this is 11 years, and this is, uh Kdia soul, you see the little tiny KdI up there. We still had the relationship with KGFJ.
0: Okay. So when you made the staffing change, if you can recall, I mean, was it already was it late '60s, was it early '70s, or
1: late '60s? Uh huh. Late '60s. Yeah. Late '60s, because we started uh, Soul Illustrated uh, magazine. In 1968, we thought if we could do so well with a newsprint publication, how well we must be able to do with uh, a slick magazine. So we came out with Soul Illustrated. And
0: That I don't recall.
1: Yeah, that went from 1968 until, I don't know, it's one of the early covers. This is a collector's item because I have one. I have one. That's it. Wow. (laughs) And I can't find them anywhere. Um, James Brown was on the cover of the first issue. The second one was Aretha Franklin. We were coming out every two to three months, and we managed to publish for about three years. That might be the three years with Soul Illustrated until it was about to destroy Soul Newspaper because of the cost, and I had to fold it. And that was uh, probably one of the biggest, deepest, that was a big loss for me because Soul Illustrated was gorgeous and, you know, more intellectual in a way. And uh, when I suspended publication, when I made that decision, it was, it was very hard.
0: Now that was a, a different content entirely from what was it's in the newspaper?
1: Completely different content, different uh, editorial staff. It was uh, Leroy Robinson was the editor and he wrote, had written a, a jazz column in Soul for many years. And his friend, uh, Bernie Rollins, who out of that first bunch is the only one still living. He was a graphic artist. Bernie was working in Vietnam at the time for the first two issues. And we mailed the copy over there. He did the layouts and mailed them back. And that's how uh, Soul Illustrated was published for the first two issues until he got here and then became part of our staff as well.
0: And what was the mix of the sole newspaper content in terms of dedicated to music or other kinds of celebrities or you know the um you know just what was going on in the community and that kind of thing
1: in the beginning it was music it was black music that was it and then it started to become black films black television shows and then it became just black entertainment in general And sometimes there would be local stories. We tried to make it as national as possible, though, at all times. Um, There were columns. There was Walter Burrell's Hollywood. There was, like I said, Leroy Robinson's jazz column. And and then we'd go with what the hottest records were and who we wanted on the cover. And sometimes with who we could get good photos because they were performing in Los Angeles. Because that was our main place for doing photography and shooting in our staff. But we also had, like, um, Tommy Gordy, which was one of Barry's nephews, was uh, our, I don't know, what, what, what's the name for it when you call people, Stringer, like, he was in uh, Detroit. We uh-huh. had Chief Bartley in um, New York. We had someone out of Chicago, and I can't remember who it is.
0: How did you decide on, you know, who might be on the cover or who might be uh, heavily featured? Did, did you get a lot of stuff pitched at you by the record labels or studios and things like that? Or how independent editorially were you in that regard?
1: Scott, I guess I should have remembered to tell you about this on my own. When we first started, there were uh, really not many, if any, Black publicists out there. And Black music had, at the very beginning in 1966 when Soul started, most of the artists, Motown had stuff, but many of the artists and the record companies didn't even have pictures or bios on their artists. Black music was not a uh, crossover yet. It was just that. Uh, what, did, what did we call it? <laughs> R&B? Uh, I don't even know. I think we were using the word Negro, okay? And I think we started to slide into black and the use of that term for the music um we had to we had to literally we shot early pictures of people howard bingham was out there taking photographs um would give us photos he was muhammad ali's photographer and friend and um eventually by we had different photographers eric whitaker i remember was another one of our early photographers we had some but we weren't everywhere it was like by the time we hit 72 when bruce Holloman came on board as a photographer uh howard brought him to us he had met bruce he liked bruce and he brought him up and basically gave him to us to work for us and uh bruce developed it solo. and that's all he talks about and thanks us for the start but he went to uh, Instead of me, I was invited with the Supremes to go to London or somewhere, and I sent Bruce or Japan. He was stunned because I was—I needed to be home. I needed to be in the office. I wasn't up for, I wasn't a groupie. I wasn't into running with them. I just needed to get the story and the photos. I sent him to uh, Egypt with uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire, okay? Uh, you know, he got to do a whole lot of things. He brought on Bobby Holland, who was another photographer who developed... The writers, the same thing. I would send them versus me. So if you wanted to, like uh, Bob Jones at Motown would invite me to Las Vegas. And I'd say, Bob, I can't come. I need a photographer and a writer. And I mean, that was always the way I thought. And uh, I remember one time Bruce, Bobby, and I went to Vegas together for the Supremes. And uh, Bob was just too through when he found out that, you know, I didn't make special accommodations for me. I think the three of us had the same room and he was just, you can't do that. And I was like, to me, they were kids. Now, in retrospect, I realized they were like seven, eight years younger than me, but nobody was married and had kids. So I was 15 years older in my head than I was physically. (laughs) I was, I was the boss and I knew I was the boss. They always said I was kind, um, but it was, it was, I didn't take any guff, it was business. I remember Bruce and G. Fitz Bartley had been standing, had gone to lunch at the melting pot on Melrose and La Cienega. And they came back hee-hawing and laughing. that They saw Jim Brown kissing some girl on the corner, and that's the ex-football player actor, Jim Brown. And I said, you got the shot. And they said, oh no, we couldn't, we couldn't do that. That would invade privacy. And I was basically, you know, forget privacy. He was standing in a public location. And I went out and bought myself a camera. I said, I'll show you guys how to get photos. And uh, I shot Diane Carroll at the, at the uh, Coconut Grove at the Ambassador Hotel. And I remember Howard telling me nothing's going to come out. And I said, well, then show me what to do. He said, you'll learn. Wouldn't help me. And, you know, I didn't know to go up to the stage and monitor the light and then go back to take the picture. We're talking. I didn't have that kind of meter on the camera in those days. It wasn't like this phone thing we're talking on. It was a whole nother era. Um, so I learned and and I remember seeing uh, Jim in a nightclub in Atlanta. And, I, and he, again, smooching with some girl, woman, and I focused and I focused in the dark and I put my flash on it, and finally I turned around and went, bang I took a picture of him, <laughs> and he stood up with his big old self, and he saw it was me, and he just cracked up, you know, because <laughs> I got the shot. Um,
0: like the paparazzi.
1: Yeah, so by doing that, I could push my photographers. If you see it, shoot it. We'll decide later. Don't, don't censor. Get the shots. And so, you know, they became really very brave and very arrogant <laughs> souls in their own ways, you know. Um, yes, yeah, just get the job done. It didn't matter, I, I it, there's there's no stopping us. Uh, before Bob Jones, it was Junius Griffin at uh, Motown Records and he worked with us. You know, I remember being so happy when we start working with Stax Records and there was Deanie Parker and we always had access to Al Bell, uh, In New York, at uh, CBS, it was LeBaron Taylor and then Jimmy Tyrell and uh, LeBaron and I became friends because again, he called me, bawling me out about something that we published and I bawled him out and he couldn't believe it. Um, I do remember this time at Capitol Records though, this guy, one of the executives, it was a party and he brought his wife over to me and he said, This is the one I've been telling you about. She's the most independent colored girl I ever met. And I was cool, but I wanted to explode. (laughs) But he, because he was complimenting me, but in my militant head, I wasn't a girl and the most independent, you know, where was that coming from? Okay. Um, It was, it was an interesting era for me. Um, I had to grow up very fast. Joyce Miller was a promotions woman for Capitol Records and had come here from Detroit. And she's the closest thing to a mentor that I ever had. I remember telling her I was getting ready to go on the road and she said, I'll talk to you when you get back. And I remember crying because I wanted her to say, you're going on the road, you're traveling. And she didn't give me any of that. And I told her when I came back, It it was different. You know, I mean, really we're talking about a Watts child now. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you know, airplanes and go flying to, into New York, taking a helicopter to uh, Newark, New Jersey and being picked up at the airport by a guy named Red to go over to All Platinum Records where uh, Sylvia was the singer. And uh, when I think back about how scary that I should have been scared, you know, but I, I wasn't um, the artist. I want to talk about the artist. So it's enough about me. One time we set up, I had to talk, uh, oh God, what was the record company? Casablanca. Into shooting pictures of uh, Donna Summer. They wanted to hand us handouts. And I talked them into it. And Bruce and Bobby set up the, the, the area with the backdrops and the lighting and the whole bit. And they said, you got 20 minutes. Donna was so impressed that she stayed for four hours for the photo shoot. And then when Ebony wanted to do their cover, she said, I'll only do it if you bring Bruce Tollman. So that was his first shot at an Ebony uh, project. So I,
0: I saw some of those shots in his book. Very, very nice.
1: Yeah. So I think what I'm trying to say, we were kind of a, a training, teaching opportunity for people. If there had not been a soul, many of the black uh, journalists, photographers out there would not have had anywhere to work. And um, I don't even remember who some of the people are, but they started there. Archie Ivey
0: mm-hmm.
1: worked for uh, Clinton. Archie, Archie came in and he, he was a writer for Soul and he said, I, I want to do something on Parliament Funkadelic. I said, Who in the is Parliament Funkadelic? And then he showed me a picture and I went, Oh, God, no. <laughs> and, and he's going on and on about how important it is to do it. And I said, Okay, we'll do it. And if I'm wrong, I'll eat my hat. And so they're up at the office and we're interviewing them, and George is there. And I said, Hand me my hat, you know, because <laughs> they were happening. Archie went on with them, left Seoul, and became their Minister of Information, handling their communications for years and years and years all over the world. And, um, you know, when I saw George uh, got uh, at, at the Grammy here about two years ago, Museum walk up to him and he recognized Bruce because Bruce had done a lot of work with him and Bruce said do you know who this lady is and he looked at me and he looked at me and he said Archie Ivy couldn't remember my name but Archie Ivy he knew that and when I told him he laughed you know it was the whole trip and
0: he has a good memory I've learned that Huh? he may not remember your name but George George Clinton has a good memory of stuff
1: yeah that always fascinates me yeah (laughs) because I don't (laughs) <laughs> yeah so you know the the artist uh, respected us they treated us right nobody was clamoring at them in those days at the beginning now as they would started the crossover it became harder and harder and harder uh we'd have to fight for it and i'd have to bully an awful lot uh, i can remember having uh, i won't call names but a couple publicists that had gone on to work for one with a record company and one was with a huge uh, public relations firm. And I basically said, if it wasn't for us, they wouldn't need you. You have a job because of a soul. And they got it.
0: Remember where you came from.
1: Yeah, don't ever forget where you came from. Never, you know. And I've never forgotten the people that helped me and helped soul and, you know, did nice things for us.
0: As you, as you gained that status, though, um, did you get a lot of the, you know, record companies and things kind of uh, pushing you to cover certain things? And you must have had some of that.
1: Oh, yeah. It started, I'm trying to think, in the mid-70s where they started trying to demand and push and a whole bit. And we pushed back because we had staff meetings. There was no dictatorship. I never did that. The staff could put in we'd fight internally about who we thought we should be covering and who we would do. Um, So everybody always felt like they were part of it. And uh, like with the the Archie thing, uh, I couldn't know everything. And I knew I didn't know everything. I had to depend on and count on my staff. They were the ones that brought what was, they were the ones in the street, in the fields. Wasn't me. So they bring the things back. And uh, record companies did get very, very pushy sometimes trying to push somebody down your throat. And I wish I could remember the situation, but I really can't, which is really kind of bizarre. I do remember with great fondness, um, we interviewed Natalie Cole. And I would always tell them to tape the interview, but often they didn't. And she, after we printed the story, she said, that's not what she said. And so of course I pulled out the tape and sent it to him, And that was the end of that. Um, we had to do that a few times with different people um, We tried to cover ourselves. I tried to make our, our writers, they were, they were, they had integrity. They were honest. Uh, we didn't want to just serve you PR information. We wanted the real story. And towards the end, um, it was more PR I'd say in the eighties that we 81, 82. When I think about Mary, Mary, <laughs> excuse me, <coughs> Barry manilow on
0: the cover i want to cut my own throat okay <laughs> i i, w- I was going to ask you uh actually that's one of my uh, questions and i uh, is you know how did the publication uh deal with you know crossover artists you know especially like uh or, or white RB artists like average white band and tina marie and um was it just the, the, the uh, race was not looked at or was it sort of uncomfortable? I mean, how did you guys handle
1: it? No, we were fine because the staff was always uh, integrated. When I say I was militant, I was a racist militant. I wanted to make sure blacks were in a prevalent and predominant space. But we always had uh, mixed staff. We had uh, it, it was not color conscious. Judy Spiegelman was an editor for a number of years. And she and I were great, became great friends. Um, There's an artist, and I wish I could remember his name. He's a uh, he paints, but he reached out to me a few years ago. He was selling sandwiches, I guess, and he, we were talking, and he was a writer, and I gave him assignments, and he's just a clean cut Connecticut white guy, okay. And he said that I gave him a start, okay. Lawrence Tanner, who announces the games at um, for the Lakers, he's the voice of the Lakers, Lawrence started out. He wrote when he first came here some stories for your soul newspaper. It, it didn't matter. It, what mattered was what you were about. You were into black music. Like when you're talking about you hit all the, the magazines on the newsstand. And so I was going to tease you and say, I didn't think you were black, but, you know. <laughs> You were, it was in your soul. So if it was in your soul, so you already had soul, you were fine. It didn't matter what color you were.
0: Well, I understand that from a um, staffing perspective, but in terms of like the featured artists, I mean, would you have been okay? Or did you even, I'm not sure, like have an average white band, like on the cover of the publication, would that have been.
1: They were on one cover. Okay. Yeah. 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 uh, One fabulous publicist friend even sold me into the Doobie brothers were on the cover and I love their music. Okay. Uh,
0: Well, especially during the disco era, you had a lot of white artists that were sort of crossing over. That's right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to this day, I love Michael McDonald and his performance and, you know, and I, and I met them when Michael came. So there was some soul there. And then there was uh, a black, bass player that was part of the band uh tyran porter so that was kind of the the justification and, and the publicist which is so funny uh do you remember david guest yeah okay yeah. david cut his teeth at soul he was running around he was a high school student with copies of soul in the trunk of his car and all kinds of other music stuff and um uh, Good, he was good friends with tito jackson and they'd come up to the office and um uh, so david grew up at soul when he took his job at i don't remember the record company moved to new york i consulted and said go to new york um take that job that was before all the notoriety he achieved way later
0: you know when you mentioned about some of the artists uh getting a little questionable with what they said and, and and that kind of thing did you actually get any lawsuits did, did that come up never wow that's never. pretty good
1: we we did you know at some point have an attorney um uh rate his was our attorney for a period of time he was uh, an attorney he had worked at capital records uh god there were two or three thomasina reed uh, you know we had there were three of them that were there for us at different times And it was, you know, they would do the best they could to do us a favor. Uh, You know, they didn't gouge us.